Um, but once again, good morning uh, to all of you guys. Uh, I, it's great to see some people I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, and those of you guys that are new, uh, an extra good morning uh, to you guys as well. Well, we're going to today finish the second book in our series. Uh, and so it's really excited that you guys get to be with us as we finish Second Timothy as we journey through the pastorals. Uh, for the rest of us here, again, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you have a Bible, please turn there now. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screens, but uh, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 936. As we regularly do, we're going to begin our time with the reading of God's Word. And as we read, this is kind of a little longer of a passage, uh, but you have homework. As we read verses 9 through 22... I want you to pay attention to how Paul highlights God's grace as he mentions 19 different people. Just in this section alone, notice how Paul is making much of God's grace as he mentions these people. So please follow along with me. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Paul writes this. To Timothy, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Meet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, again, we come before you this morning confessing that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. We pray that you would, by your spirit, guide us. You'd encourage us, comfort us, and meet us where we are. As we often do, we pray for our neighbors, both locally and globally, who have not yet sung praises to your name. Grow us, Lord, and equip us. Send us to boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel to these neighbors. We also pray for those here. As we often do, we also turn our attention to those that have not yet placed their trust in you. We pray first for our children here this morning that you have blessed us with. We pray that they would come to know Jesus at a young age and that you would spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please grow in them a desire to know you. And again, we pray for all those that are serving all over campus, upstairs, downstairs, in the back. We, we pray that you bring them fresh joy as they serve this morning. For those hurting and the weak, May your peace and your strength abound. We pray for those that are battling sickness, 
those that are slowly recovering, we pray that, God, that they find comfort that only comes from you in the times of frustration and times of defeat. Bring them fresh joy. For all those family members and medical staff that are caring for them, may you be their strength. May you give them rest. We pray for the students here, those that might even be on fall break this week. Lord, we, we pray that they find refreshment this week. And Lord, I pray that you carry them through the struggles that they do still face day to day. May you continually draw them to know your grace deeper and deeper every day. We pray for those that are married, those with young families, and especially those who are struggling in their marriages. Again, we pray that you grant them wisdom, reveal to them their sin, guide them in your grace and your mercy, and restore to them their joy. We pray for the young singles and the college students. May you sustain them during stressful times. Give them hope in their struggles. Delight them in knowing your nearness. For those who are new and maybe don't know what it means to be in a relationship with you, we pray that you guide them to experience the immeasurable joy of salvation this morning. So we pray that you guide us as we study your word. Be with us, Spirit. In the power of Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to be finishing up, as I said earlier, our journey through the book of Second Timothy. And for those of you guys that might be new to the Bible, Second uh, Timothy, again, it's, it's actually a letter. Paul often uses this form of, of letter writing to talk to churches. But here, as we talked about in First Timothy and Second Timothy, they're amongst only two other letters that are written to individuals rather than a, a whole church community. Timothy was Paul's young protege, his ministry partner and his faithful friend. We're going to talk about that today. Paul's felt responsibility for Timothy and as well as his fatherly love for him is seen in the opening phrase of this second letter as he writes to Timothy that he is his spiritual child, his spiritual son. See, Paul entrusted Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus, which is considered to be one of Paul's most cherished churches. The book of Acts records that Paul established this church in Ephesus and spent nearly three years discipling them because of his heart for the people and their response to the gospel message. His ministry in Ephesus would have been Paul's longest recorded stay in his missionary journeys. Although Paul himself greatly invested in the leaders of this church, it wasn't long before, though, that this church began to face difficulties. We witnessed how this specific church dealt with many problems, which mainly revolved around a group who taught and misled people using the Bible. Paul refers to these people as false teachers because they misrepresented God in their actions as well as their teachings from the Bible. So what does Paul do for Timothy? He, he writes this first letter to Timothy, which we covered roughly two months ago. Paul encouraged Timothy here in this first letter, and he also highlighted the important instructions about what are the purpose, the practices of the church. Shortly after this first letter, believed to be maybe a year to three years after this first letter, Paul writes a second letter to Timothy, which is what we're finishing this morning. Paul writes the second letter, and in the second letter, he focuses on how Timothy's personal ministry and how he is to also stand against these false teachers. And unlike his first letter, Paul is writing from what's believed to be a Roman prison, sentenced to his death because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Historically, he's believed to be in an underground chamber in the Mamertine prison. The ending of this letter suggests, again, that Paul has already had his court hearing. And he expects to be put to death soon. With this understanding, it's believed that this is Paul's final words, his final writing. He writes these passionate exhortations and personal pleas to Timothy before his death. And throughout these 
passionate pleas, Paul points Timothy to that which is most important, and that is the gospel message. Paul begins this letter by reminding Timothy what it takes to guard the gospel. And just as Paul has entrusted this mission to Timothy, Timothy is also to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others. In order to do this, Timothy must rightly handle the Bible. He must also avoid empty chatter. And he must, like every Christian, he must endure opposition. In the last half of this letter, Paul explains the difference between unfaithful examples and faithful examples. Unfaithful examples like the false teachers and faithful examples like that of Jesus Christ, that of his own personal example, and as well as what we see here, some of Paul's most trusted friends. Strangely enough, the way Paul ends this letter seems less instructive and therefore unimportant to most readers. Maybe if you were preparing to read this morning for the text that you didn't want to stumble across the names, so you just kind of fast-forwarded through them. So most readers will disregard the section because, one, there are a bunch of names that are just really hard to pronounce. Secondly, people will look over the ending part of this letter because it doesn't seem very instructive as the other chapters did, especially for the church today. But it would be very helpful for readers to remember that these words, they're Paul's final words to Timothy as he's approaching his impending death. So what are these important charges that he gives his spiritual son? What are these final, final words that he wants to write to Timothy? Paul concludes his final instructions to Timothy with two important emphases. In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul explains first the importance of being ready, the importance of being ready to proclaim the gospel. And secondly, Paul explains the importance of Christian friendship. Again, the importance of being ready to proclaim the gospel and the importance of Christian friendship. Here in chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, Paul writes his final words to Timothy, expressing the value of faithful, great commission friendships. So again, the title of the sermon sermon this morning is The Importance of Christian Friendships. And again, we will be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're glad that you're here. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're exploring the Christian faith, I want to encourage you that studying about the church through the study of the Bible, it will teach you a whole lot about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian this morning, my hope for you is that you will not only witness God's loving instruction for his church, but that you will personally be drawn to him through the power of the gospel today. Christian, I turn to you. My, my hope is that you will not, be, not only be encouraged by Paul's heart for the church, but that you yourselves will reflect on, one, your friendships and how your friendships either help or hinder your missional endurance. Secondly, not only do I want you to reflect on your friendships, but I also want you to examine your faithfulness in these friendships, your faithfulness to God in these friendships, as well as your faithfulness to these friends. We're going to talk about Christian friendship here in a little bit and unpack what I mean by that. But in order to do these things, I want to first offer three important principles that help every Christian understand what is the importance of Christian friendship. There's notes in your, in your bulletin, uh, and we're going to be filling in blanks. This is the first blank. The first principle I want to highlight this morning is that Christian friendships are defined by their love for the mission together. We're going to see this in verses 9 through 15. Again, the first point, Christian friendships are defined by their love for the mission together. The mission. Let me first clarify, what do I mean when I use the phrase Christian friendships? We're talking with Matt and JT earlier this week. Uh, there, there are at least three different ways, there may be many more, but there are at least three different ways this phrase Christian friendships could be understood. That when I say Christian friends, you might be thinking of at least one of these three. First, 
In a very general, very, very general sense, Christian friendships could simply refer to a Christian that simply has friends. For instance, you might consider yourself to be a Christian and you might have a group of buddies that you get together with on the weekends. You have inside jokes. You, you might have some fond memories together. Maybe you take friendly jabs at each other. Maybe unwelcome jabs at each other every now and again. You know, that, that's wonderful. That, that's wonderful, but this is not how I'll be using this phrase. It's much more than that. Secondly, Christian friendships could also refer to a Christian who has friends that are also Christians. You know, they're, they're like-minded in the sense that even though they might not talk about their faith often, they know each other are Christians. In fact, you might have friends here in this room who fall into this general category of Christian friends, that you're a Christian and they're a Christian and you get along. You know, th- this, is, this is common. This is not unique. It's, it's fairly common within churches. But this is also not how I'll be using the phrase Christian friendships. It's, it's much bigger, again, than that. So if it's not Christians that simply have friends, and it's not simply Christians that have Christian friends, what do I mean? Thir- thirdly, and more specifically, Christian friendships could also refer to Christian friends who are co-labors in ministry with other friends. Let me repeat that. The third way, Christian friendships could also refer to Christian friends who have friends that they would consider co-laborers in the mission together, that love the mission. See, they, they understand the mission together. They love the church's mission as a whole, and they are, get this, they are fulfilling their role in the mission with you together through the local church. See, there's a great difference between a Christian who simply has friends and a Christian that has friends the way Paul describes Christian friends. Based on Paul's description of faithful friends, it would seem not only are these friendships are very rare, but they're also necessary in order to live out the mission that Jesus gave every Christian. For Christians, uh, or sorry, for Paul, Christian friends are defined by their mutual love for the church's mission together. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus, who had just risen from the dead, he proclaimed, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. True Christian friendships find their origin in that constant purpose and hope in this missional command Verse 9 begins with what seems like a status report. In his underground prison chamber, Paul reflects on his lifetime of ministry and how he has fought the good fight. He has finished the race and kept the faith. Paul now explains here to Timothy about his current situation and the whereabouts of some mutual friends that he has. He also has some final requests due to his imprisonment. Verse 9, Paul expresses his need to see his faithful friend. Timothy, we see this expression, do your best to come to me soon, both here and in near the end of verse 21. This request indicates Paul's loneliness, but also his eagerness to be with faithful friends in his time of need. This Greek word translated soon in the ESV communicates that Paul wants Timothy, he really wants him to come quickly. It's possible that Paul believed his execution will be soon and wanted Timothy to make every effort to hurry so that Paul could see his spiritual son one last time. Nonetheless, during the best of conditions, it would take Timothy as quick as three to as long as possibly six months over land and sea just to make it to Rome. Paul also knew that the sea transportation would be stopped in the winter months because of the harsh conditions of the Mediterranean. So if 
Timothy were to ever see Paul again, he must leave now. Verse 10, Paul uses this word for to explain the motivation for this request. Why, why is he saying that you need to come soon? Paul contrasts Timothy's faithfulness with the unfaithfulness of a man named Demas. Paul explains the pain and the discouragement that Demas brought him when he abandoned him. Demas was once a part of Paul's inner circle of ministry co-laborers. Possibly a year or two before the first letter to Timothy, Paul wrote to Philemon that Demas was, Luke, was like Luke, a fellow co-worker in Christ. You know, it's crazy to think that a man who was once a part of Paul's inner circle, who did ministry with Paul, would himself fall away. But now Demas has deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica, which is possibly his hometown, that he retreated back home. Some believe that Demas simply abandoned Paul and didn't necessarily forsake his faith in Christ, but Paul's description here makes it clear that Demas was led by the wrong kind of love. Instead of being led by a love for Christ and others, Demas was in love with this present world. And this hurt Paul. He was more interested, Demas was more interested in his own comforts and his safety than a life committed to Jesus and his church's mission. Like many of us who have had faithful friends that fell away, Demas' departure greatly discouraged Paul. It hurt Paul. Paul explains that two others have left as well, yet their departures were somewhat more positive and missionally motivated. Paul explains that Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus has gone to Dalmatia, uh, which is the city in Illyricum. Uh, this mention of Crescens is the only one recorded in Scripture. Therefore, we, we don't really know much about him, but we're certainly familiar with Titus. In fact, Acts and Romans tells us about Paul's previous ministry in Galatia and Illyricum. Most New Testament scholars believe that Paul himself dispatched Crescens and Titus to continue the gospel ministry in those areas and the churches that were established there. These two men were faithful friends to Paul, sent out. Verse 11, then Paul explains that Luke alone is with him. And please understand that Paul is not complaining that he is stuck with his friend named Luke, stuck with this guy named Dr. Luke. He's simply evidencing his humanity. Paul feels abandoned in his greatest time of need, though Luke is still with him. Luke was a dear friend to Paul, and they shared quite the history together. I love how Kent Hughes words it. He says, Luke was a tough friend for tough times. He was with Paul in prison from the first time to the last. He was Paul's biographer, and the we passages in Acts indicate that he was with the apostle during most of his ministry difficulties. Since Luke is described as a doctor in Colossians chapter 4, it's possible that Luke here is providing medical care for Paul's physical needs. And it is also believed that Luke may have helped Paul as sort of being like an amanuensis, kind of being a scribe for Paul, possibly writing this letter. And next, Paul then tells Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. The fact that Paul mentions Mark here, it's a sign of God's grace in Christian friendships. Mark once proved to be an unfaithful friend when he abandoned Paul on his first missionary journey. But because of this, Paul refused to partner with Mark on his second missionary journey. This caused a rift, a falling out with another friend named Barnabas. If you remember when we went through Acts, this was really tough for Paul. But by God's grace, nearly 20 years later, Mark was restored and their friendship was reconciled. Tychicus was also a dear friend and a trusted ally of Paul. In Colossians, Paul described him as an encourager. We all need friends like Tychicus. He also describes him as a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. It's believed that Paul relied on Tychicus to deliver the letters to Colossians, uh, the letter of Colossians, the letter of Ephesians, and even this current letter, 2 Timothy. And now, like Crescens and Titus, Paul 
is sending out Tychicus, has sent out Tychicus to strengthen the gospel work that is being done in Ephesus. By sending this guy Tychicus to Ephesus, he was also able to possibly be a temporary replacement for Timothy so that Timothy could come and visit Paul in Rome. Tychicus was much more than a messenger, a well-equipped replacement and a co-worker. He too was one of Paul's faithful friends. Finally, Paul requests that Timothy bring him his cloak, his books, his parchments that were left with a man named Carpus. Carpus was a believer from Troas that Paul had visited. And not much is really known about him, especially his friendship with this guy named Carpus, but some believe that the church met in his home. And some scholars suggest that Paul was possibly arrested in his hometown of Troas. And Paul left his personal effects and scrolls with him. Nonetheless, Paul asks for his cloak to keep warm in the coming winter months. Little is really known about the contents of these scrolls and parchments, but the fact that he requests them, get this, implies that Paul has not disengaged from his ministry responsibilities. Christian, understand that Paul has come to the end of his life and has already assessed that he has fought the good fight. He has finished the race and he has kept the faith. But as long as he has breath, Paul still sees the need to read and be devoted to the ministry of God's word. He understands that every moment alive is a moment that should be used for the gospel mission. What a friend Carpus was to be trusted with Paul's personal ministry notes and effects. In verses 14 and 15, Paul continues to prepare Timothy for his travels. And out of Paul's concern for Timothy and their mission together, Paul warned Timothy of a dangerous foe, Alexander. Paul explains that Alexander did him great harm. And since Alexander is a common name in this time and place, little is really known about Alexander. Some New Testament scholars believe that this is the same Alexander in Paul's first letter who made shipwreck of his faith. It's possible that his work as a coppersmith maybe also indicates that at some point he was an idol maker who would have naturally resented Paul and the gospel message, which really affected his income. Others believe that Alexander played a role in Paul's arrest in Troas, leading them to his current arrest and prison sentence. Nonetheless, Paul didn't want Timothy to share in his pain, and he told Timothy to beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And again, Paul's friendship with Timothy here, it's defined by the mission together. My first exhortation this morning is, church, determine to invest in such friendships. Again, the the exhortation that I have for this first point, the next blank is church. Determine to invest in such friendships. For Paul, Christian friends were the ones he could count on to help him make disciples of all nations. These type of faithful friends were the ones that he has served with, he's evangelized with, he's discipled with, and he's equipped others with. But it doesn't end with missional service. They don't just do things together. They are also the ones he could count on for encouragement in the heat of battle. The ones he could go to for comfort in the difficult times of ministry. The ones he could go to for support that would stand behind him and that could vouch for him. And these were also the ones he could count on to stand beside him beside him, not only in the victories of ministry, but more importantly in the moments that felt like utter defeat. See, Christian friends, the way that Paul is using it, co-laborers in Christ, they're not just the ones that have to get on your hands and knees and scrub the floor of the church with. They're not just ones that you minister with. They're the ones that minister to you and you minister to them. These were not simply fair-weathered friendships. They were faithful friends, defined by the mission together. And again, church, you must determine to invest in such friendships. If you're a Christian, you need friends the way Paul describes friends. 
The second principle I want to highlight from the text is though some friendships fail, though some friendships fail, God remains faithful. We see this in verses 16 through 18. Again, though some friendships fail, God remains faithful. Perhaps you know what it's like to have a longtime friend who lets you down, or even a trusted friend that fails to be by your side through thick and thin. You know, you might currently feel hurt, betrayed, or even lonely. Like you, Paul was no stranger to these emotions. Paul was human. I think that's one of the great highlights of the ending of this is that he wasn't some superhuman warrior for God. He felt the same type of emotions that we could feel in these type of friendships that do let us down. As much as he had a great circle of friends and ministry companions, he still felt the sting of abandonment from time to time. But even in his loneliest moments, Paul still found great hope in God's faithfulness. Christians can learn a lot from Paul's example. In verse 16, Paul writes, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. This first offense is likely referring to a recent preliminary court hearing. This would have been the first investigative hearing after the formal trial against Paul. As one New Testament scholar comments, Paul was on trial for his life. Roman law would have allowed Paul here to call on a witness to defend his case or simply give him some advisement. And unlike Paul's previous trial in Acts 28, the Romans here presumed that he was guilty. What Paul needed here at this moment was a faithful friend. But amongst all his trusted friends and all the other Christians in Rome, no one was courageous enough to stand beside him where they weren't able to. It would seem that while others were simply afraid, others were afraid to suffer the same fate as Paul. Perhaps Paul felt the same abandonment that the Lord Jesus Christ felt at Gethsemane when all forsook him and fled. Like Jesus, Paul similarly does not blame his friends, though. He declares, may it not be charged against them. See, his friends may have failed him. But Paul resolutely declares, the Lord stood by me. We're going to have to quickly go to our second exhortation this morning. What can we do in application? Is What challenge can I give you in the second point? The second point, second exhortation is church. Trust firmly. Trust firmly firmly in God's faithfulness. Paul knew that just as Christ was not alone, he too was not alone in his great time of need. He knew that God was with him. And for that, Paul praises God. One commentator says, he breaks out into song like a Disney movie. (laughs) He breaks out into song. He says, to him, to God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Not only is God with him, Paul declares that God strengthened him in order that he would proclaim in full the gospel so that the tribunals, the court officials of the Roman Empire, his judges, and possibly even the emperor himself would hear the complete gospel message. Paul wouldn't let it down. He knew an opportunity when he saw it, even if his life was at risk. This is my chance to share the gospel yet again. Paul himself declared, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. Paul not only believed in Jesus' great commission promise that I am with you always, he experienced it. Paul was more concerned with the gospel message reaching the nations than he was concerned about his current trial. He knew that even though his foes were many, even though his friends deserted him, that God had not deserted him. Stott sums it up well. He writes this, Yet even now, although in grave personal danger, facing the probability of a death sentence, Paul's highest concern is not himself, but Jesus Christ. 
Not to be a witness in his own defense, but a witness to Jesus Christ. Not to plead his own cause, but the cause of Jesus Christ. Christian, what a great example we have in Paul who understood what it meant to firmly trust in God's faithfulness despite the worst and the loneliest of situations. Church, trust firmly in God's faithfulness. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you, too, oppose this good news about Jesus because you just can't believe it. I challenge you to grow in what it means to trust in God's faithfulness, to learn what it means to trust firmly, even through disbelief, that God is faithful. The third principle I want to highlight this morning, if you're filling in blanks. Uh, the third principle I want to highlight, this is the next blank. Christian friendships, Christian friendships are eternal. Christian friendships are eternal and help us endure together. We see this in verses 19 through 22. Something that separates Christian friendship from other friendships is its shelf life. A recent study from German sociologist Gerald Mullenhorst revealed that in our modern era, the average shelf life of a friendship is seven years. Mullenhorst, he concludes that friendships are determined by circumstances and not personal preferences. And according to this researcher, friendships require close proximity in order to survive. That means if they're not close together, if people don't see each other enough, that the friendships will simply fall apart. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that this is not entirely true of Christian friendships. See, because of Jesus Christ, Christians are given eternal life with him. In the moment that they repent, the moment they return to Christ, that they're given eternal life with him. But this directly affects the way that Christians relate to other Christians. How? Christians who are friends with other Christians have eternity to look forward to together. And they get to worship God together forever. See, they don't simply just share a friends for life mentality or reality. They can truly identify as friends for eternity. Just as an aside, uh, on Friday, uh, I got to meet some new Christian friends. Uh, some serve in other countries. Some serve in a different island. But I can call them faithful friends. I might never see them again. But praise God for friendships like these. Paul himself experienced Christian friendships that went beyond the average shelf life and beyond the expectations of long-distance friendships. Paul ends this letter to Timothy with a farewell that includes a group of some of his closest friends. Now at the end of his life, Paul shows his concerns for his friends that God has gifted him over the years. I agree with Towner when he wrote that Paul wanted these friends to know his continued feelings for them in the hardest of times. Paul instructed Timothy first, greet Prisca and Aquila and the house of Onesiphorus. Prisca is the formal kind of shortened version of the name Priscilla, which is the woman that we saw in Acts chapter 18 about a year ago. She and her husband, Aquila, were both some of Paul's oldest friends. They originally met in Corinth, and three of them, or the three of them, worked together as tent makers together. Their Christian faith is seen in their steady partnership and support of Paul's gospel mission. When he needed a place to stay in Corinth, this couple housed him. When Paul boarded a ship to Ephesus, this, cu- this couple came with him. Paul mentions that the church met in their home in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul even mentions that they were fellow co-laborers in Jesus Christ who risked their next for my life. They literally were life-saving friends. Not only was Paul thankful for this dear couple, Paul again mentions his friend named Onesiphorus. Originally, he was mentioned in the opening of this letter as one who often refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of his chains. 
It is possible that the location of Paul's imprisonment was not yet public knowledge. And so, Paul praised his friend Onesiphorus in the beginning of this letter for searching for him earnestly. Paul wants Timothy to make sure that these three friends knew how foundational they were to him. In verse 20, Paul then mentions the names of two more mutual friends. He explains to Timothy the reason why these friends were not presently with him. For Erastus, it wasn't because of his unfaithfulness to Paul, but because Erastus seems to have been sent to do ministry work in Corinth. Just as Paul had sent Crescens to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. And secondly, Paul gives Timothy an update on their mutual friend Trophimus. Paul wanted to inform Timothy of their friend's illness, possibly implying that Timothy was also to minister to his needs whenever he arrives, hopefully before the winter. Again, Paul echoes his request that Timothy diligently begin his 900-mile trek over land and sea to come and visit Paul before his impending execution. He has endured with Timothy to the end and wishes to see his rider die one more time. The final names that Paul lists is a group who seem to be Roman Christians. He names Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and ends with the phrase, all the brothers, referring to all the Christian men and women in Rome. Since Christianity was already present when Paul first arrived in Rome, it might be that God gifted Paul some local Christian friends to minister with Paul. And Paul wanted Timothy to meet them when he arrived. Not much is certain about these new Christian friends, but even though they are somewhat unknown to us, they most certainly were known by Paul. And he counted their friendship as noteworthy for Timothy. By mentioning their specific names, Paul seems to implying that these were faithful friends that will help Timothy endure for the gospel in Rome. As one pastor comments, while they were unknown to us, they were not unknown to God. God orchestrated these friendships for Paul, and it is possible that God desired Timothy to also know them and endure with them together. Church, once again, Christian friendships are eternal, and they help us endure together. I want to guide your attention to verse 22. Look at the final words Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy. Paul writes, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This final verse is what is called a benediction. Maybe you've heard this word before, maybe you haven't. But simply, what is a benediction? A benediction is a blessing. To some degree, it's both an announcement as well as a prayer of blessing upon God's people before they depart, before they sent out. These type of endings are common with Paul's letters, but what is very unique about this ending is that it's a double benediction. It's difficult to see in most English translations, but Paul uses the singular you in the first benediction and a plural you in the second. The first benediction is specifically to Timothy. Paul brings this gospel-centered letter to a close with a gospel-centered closing. The Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. As one pastor notes, this war-torn apostle experienced God's amazing grace testified to the gospel of grace and closed by praying for the Savior's grace to strengthen and empower his spiritual son. In his second benediction, Paul writes, grace be with you. And the English language doesn't really have a second personal plural, uh, plural pl pronoun unless maybe you're from the south. Uh, if you were reading maybe a southern English translation, perhaps it would read, grace be with y'all. You know, but, but who, who is Paul referring to with this, with this y'all? The second benediction is to the entire church in Ephesus. Again, these, these letters would traditionally be read out loud. And so if this is really the last surviving words of Paul, consider Paul's unswerving focus on the Lord and his church. His prayer was that God's grace by the power of his Holy Spirit, would be with his faithful friends and his brothers in Christ, the church. He might never see any of them again, 
but he trusted all of them in the hands of our good and gracious God. My final exhortation, my final blank this morning is this. Church, when it comes to your Christian friendships, grow together by God's grace intentionally. Again, grow together by God's grace intentionally. Just as Paul demonstrated his need for God's grace in his friendships, we too must demonstrate our need for his grace in our friendships. This is another trait that makes Christian friendships distinct. Not only are Christian friendships defined by our mission together, they also grow together through God's grace by the power of his Holy Spirit. But this must be done with intentionality. And yet, in the church today, it is a shame that modern churchgoers miss out on these supernatural friendships together. Many modern churchgoers simply make the effort to show up. I made it. And by making it and showing up, they assume that deep Christian friendships will blossom on their own. I made it, guys. Where's my friends at? And if nothing appears over a period of time, some shorter, some longer, then maybe this just isn't where God led them. I might have to check out the next one. See, others will will generalize Christian friendships and simply be content with shallow acquaintances that might or might not consider themselves to actually be Christian. They will go on from Sunday to Sunday, slapping on a smile, but ultimately feeling lonely amongst large groups of also smiley people who they wish would one day take notice of them. Sad thing is we see this in many churches today because there's no intentionality with growing Christian friendships the way Paul described Christian friendships, co-laborers in Christ. But this is not how God designed Christian friendships in the modern church today. This is not how God designed his church if we're going to participate faithfully in God's relentless truth, we need to understand the importance of Christian friendships. We need to do that together and how these friendships affect the mission of the church together. In conclusion this morning, if if you're not a Christian, if you're still exploring the Christian faith, Studying about the Bible through the stu- uh, studying about the church through the study of the Bible, you're going to learn a whole lot about Jesus. And my hope for you this morning is that you've not only witnessed God's loving instruction for His church, but that you personally will be drawn to Him through the gospel message today. Turn to Christ; He will have you, Christian. Uh, I, I do this from time to time, Christian. Take a brief, a brief moment, take a break, and, and look around this room. One of the advantages of being in person. Uh, and I mean, really, take a moment uh, and stop looking at me. Stop looking down at your phones. Uh, look at each other. Look to the person uh, to the front, to the back of you, to the right, to the left of you. And as you're looking around, you might notice some that you've been friends with for maybe one year, five years, ten years, maybe 50 years. But you also might have noticed that there are some people that you haven't met before. There, there might be others here that you haven't seen in a long time. But as you looked around, I, I, I want you to be reminded of the many brothers and sisters in Christ that God has blessed with you here. Christian, I want you to take this time to reflect on your friendships and how they help or hinder your missional endurance. God did not create the church for your personal experience. 
He did not create it so that you could have this one-on-one time just looking at the preacher, singing songs and feeling your personal experience and then going home. The church is God's gathered people. We're meant to endure together. Christian, do you have friends that you would right now consider co-laborers in Jesus Christ? Not only are they friends who are Christians, but they are friends who understand the mission together. Friends that you, you know that they love the church's mission together. And they are not only loving the mission, but they are currently fulfilling their role in the mission together through the local church. Again, this form of Christian friendship, it's rare. It's important for every Christian in every time, in every place. And third, it's necessary for gospel endurance. Christian, likewise, take this moment to also examine your faithfulness to God and other Christians. Would you consider yourself a Christian friend? So not not just thinking about your friends themselves, but yourself and the friendship that you're offering to them. Would you consider yourself a Christian friend who understands the mission together? That you love the mission and make sacrifices for the mission for the sake of your friend also being on mission? Are you fulfilling the mission yourself, your role in the mission with your friends in the local church? Do you invest your time to make these types of friendships? Friendships that spur you on in great commission obedience together. Do your friendships help you in your gospel endurance? Do they help you especially when you're proclaiming the resurrected Christ to neighbors who don't know Jesus? And if you do not have this type of friend here today, brother and sister in Christ, determine to make such friends today. You can never have too many of these friends. You can never be too young to have these type of friends. You can never be too old to have these friends. Why? It is through these friendships that you will find encouragement for the mission together. You will find true expressions of God's faithfulness, but you will also find eternal friendships that will help you endure for God's glory. Church, Christian friendships are unlike any other friendship you'll have in life. They're uniquely missional, they reflect God's faithfulness, and they are eternal. You must determine to invest in such friendships, trust firmly in God's faithfulness, and grow together by God's grace intentionally. Church, we must understand the importance of Christian friendships together. And this is what it means to be his church.